Hi, this is Cole Nussbaumer Naflik, author of Storytelling with Data and Storytelling with Data Let's Practice. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Cole Nussbaumer Neflek. Cole tells stories with data. She is the founder and CEO of Storytelling with Data. Prior to Storytelling with Data, Cole's skills were honed through analytical roles in banking, private equity, and as a manager on the Google People Analytics team. Cole is a BS in applied mathematics and an MBA from University of Washington, and she joins us from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Cole is here to talk about insights into storytelling with data. Welcome, Cole. Hi, Bill. Hey, it's great to have you here. And one thing I like to ask all my guests is, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? Oh, that's a great question. The first person who comes to my mind is my mother. She was a very hard worker, close attention to detail. So I picked up some great traits from her that I think come across in my day to day. But there were a couple pivotal points where she gave me really good advice that I think ended up helping pave the path for where I am today. Give me an example of one of the pieces of good advice she shared with you. Yeah. One that comes to mind first is don't change your major, finish the math degree. <laughs> this was going into my senior year in university. I was majoring in uh, an applied math degree at the University of Washington and was gone to one of these career days. And uh, you know they had an actuary come in and talk to us and several other people who had studied math and what they'd gone on to do. And I was thinking ahead and looking out to you know finding a job and such uh, coming up to the end of my university years and was thinking, you know what? None of these jobs actually look appealing to me. Maybe I should just totally change course. And hey, architecture, that might be a fun thing to study. Maybe I should study architecture. <laughs> and so her advice to me was, yeah, that's fine. You can do that. But first, finish the math degree. <laughs> then if you want to do something else, go back to that. And it turned out I, I finished the math degree, got a job in you know, using uh, a lot of those skills. And uh, yeah, fast forward and here I am today. So I'm, I'm happy I finished the math degree. <laughs> And it's important to finish what you start in any aspect of what you do. And I'm yes. sure that that carries through, doesn't it? Absolutely. And yeah, that's the, the bigger lesson out of it is when you get into something, in particular, if you're close, right? There, there's, we often, I think, end up at these points of, do I do something totally different or, you know, throw what I've done so far out the window and start afresh? Or do I finish this and, and then look to the next thing? Cole, do you remember the time when you first realized that people could use stories to amplify or increase the effectiveness of using the data to be persuasive? I think for me, before I recognized the power of story, I first had to recognize the power of visual. So one of the things I found in my career is I, so my first job out of school was in banking and credit risk management. I was building statistical models, trying to predict who would pay us and who wouldn't and, and so forth. And 
I really enjoyed making graphs. And for me, the graph part was a way to put some creativity into the process, right? Because I could play with colors. I could try out different sorts of graphical forms, right? Look at the data in different ways. And for me, an interesting thing happened as a result of that, which is I found when I spent more time with the aesthetics of what my data looked like, right? How the graph looked, people spent more time with my graphs. And so that became this self-reinforcing thing of, hey, if I spend time to make my graph something that someone else wants to look at, I can get their attention. And beyond that, I can drive their understanding in new ways. And so for me, that was an interesting acknowledgement and something that was reinforced over time of how do you, you know, the ways that you can take data and make it something that someone else can see in ways that make it accessible and understandable in ways that it wouldn't otherwise be. And then story comes in because you can use that to take things even further, right? Because there's this really interesting thing that happens with stories. Our our brains are, are hardwired, as it turns out, to think in story and to remember stories. And so when we combine these things, right, if I tell you a story and I show you a picture that reinforces that story, a graph being one way of potentially uh, effective picture. Now, not only can you remember what you heard, but you can remember what you saw. And so I think for me, coming back to your question specifically, story came in uh, over time after seeing both helping organizations and seeing many situations where we can look at data in different ways and show data in different ways to help foster understanding, but then seeing that also fall flat sometimes, not because the data wasn't visualized well, but because it was missing the story piece. And I think that's what happens a lot of times, you know, particularly today, because everybody increasingly is being asked to do more things with data. And we have more and more data around us. And so the first step is just to, to push it back at people to say, okay, here's the data. I've, I've aggregated it. I've summarized it. I've found this thing with it. But we miss a lot of opportunity when we stop there. Whereas if we take it to that next step and say, here, audience, is why you should care about this, what you should do with this data, that's where story comes in. And that's where things get really interesting in terms of us being able to combine visuals and stories to get our audience's attention and build our credibility and ultimately move them towards the action that we want to facilitate. You moved from banking and some steps down your career, you were working with Google's people analytics team. Yeah. There you were showing different types of risks and opportunities. How did you use storytelling with data principles, even if it wasn't called that at the time, in order to highlight some of the issues and opportunities with helping people develop as part of the people analytics team? Yeah, I think one of the components that's really important to think about when we think about telling stories with our data or telling stories as we communicate in general is our audience, right? And be really clear about who is it we're communicating to? What do they care about? What motivates them? What keeps them up at night? What biases do they come in with? Or what? how might they resist what we need them to do? And then figuring out what do we need, right? What is the next thing that needs to happen? Are we trying to incite a conversation or get people to make a decision? Or are we saying we should keep doing things we've been doing things or make a change? And it's figuring out how do you make all of those things work together? 
So we can take our audience and we can take you know, the tension, if you will, as the, the thing that we need them to do or that needs resolved, and we can put those together in a way that works. Then we get the right sort of conversations going. And that's actually one of the really interesting shifts that I see happen when story comes into play in business communication in an effective way, is when we're putting just data out there, it's really easy for the conversation to focus on getting more data or more questions that we might need to answer with this data. And we end up talking a lot about the data. Whereas if we step back and we don't just show data, but we weave that data into a narrative, into a story, it can completely shifts the conversation where the conversation is no longer about the data or what questions we have or what we need. The conversation now has been reset and it's about, well, what does this mean for our business? You know, does it mean we should do things the same or differently? And it, it shifts the conversation in really interesting ways. What's an example of a way that you used it in order to help people build more effective teams, for instance? Uh, one example I can think of, and actually this was a small company in the Midwest, consumer packaged goods company. And Betty actually was the woman who we were working with here. She was running an HR team, uh, so human resources. And they'd been looking at attrition and trying to understand what drives attrition across the company. So this was a several hundred a person company. And they had spent a lot of time putting together what ended up being a sort of difficult to understand. It looked really cool, but it was this bubble graph where one of the axes was the number of people leaving. Another axis was how easy or difficult that thing would be to impact. And then the, the circles were all different sizes. They were different colors. And, and each of these was encoding something different. And we spent a lot of time talking about this graph, talking about the data. And even to complicate things a little bit further, that one of the signals was coming from their uh, HRBPs. So they were having an exit interview as people were leaving the company. They were coding the reasons people were leaving. And then a second signal was coming from the employees themselves because they were also filling out an exit survey as they left the organization. And so they had not just one bubble graph, but two bubble graphs, right? Trying to encode each of these signals. And what happened was, and this is a good example of what I just talked about, where you had to spend so much time looking at the graph, trying to unpack the data that we never even, it's hard to get back to the big picture of what does this mean? How do we interpret it? And so we spent a lot of time just looking at things in different ways and talking about, well, what are the important things here? How might we show that? And in that case, we ended up with a very simple bar chart uh, where we could see why people were leaving in relative quantities, uh, what drove them there. And actually in the initial view of the data, they had spent a lot of time talking about relocation because relocation was a, a circle on the graph that was sort of off by itself and it demanded attention as a result of that. When it turned out, that was what people were telling the HRBPs in some cases, but not even what they were saying on the exit survey. So when you looked at the data this different way, you, you could see that it was career development and training opportunities were some you know, potential points of uh, frustration for employees as they were exiting. And so looking at the data differently gave them an entirely new understanding of why people are leaving and what they might do going forward or, you know, having the right conversation focused on what they could do going forward of how to address some of those things. I remember that example from the book and I thought yeah. it was really interesting how you could unpack it and look at it in a different way. So often people want to be succinct. And if they're told in a presentation, you have three slides to get across your key points, yeah. they tend 
to pack in as much information as they can. And that's when the font size goes from yep. 22 down to eight. <laughs> that's <Yep>. no good. <laughs> Well, and I, yeah, the, and we encountered and, and that. Wait, let me, just, let me just finish because sure. it goes beyond just the visual clutter and obstructing your message yes. to, as you say, stepping back and realizing what is the decision we want to have happen here? What relevant data do we want to jump off the page yep. so that it catches people's attention and we engage in that conversation and we support the recommendations that the data has raised? That's yeah. really the key point, isn't it? Exactly. Stepping back and thinking about that. And actually in your example, if you've got three slides and you can't not get it down to eight font, right? You have to do that. There are a couple easy things you can do to still try to make that a workable scenario, which is exactly what you said. Step back, think about what is it you want your audience to know, put that in words, right? Make that the title of your slide or your graph, and then think about what data are you showing that will help reinforce that message. And think about using color sparingly or other means of focusing attention just there and then push everything else to the background. And I'm a big fan of you know, figuring out what are the things that are not critical. And when you can get rid of them, right, this is clutter that we can eliminate. Sometimes though, there are things that you have to include either to show the robustness of what you've done or because you know the question's going to come up and you need to be able to address it. So it's fine. Leave those things there, but push them to the back, either physically by putting them later in the deck or whatever the communication thing is, or visually by de-emphasizing emphasizing the less important stuff and emphasizing the important things. So the problem is when everything looks equally important, we run the risk of our audience not actually taking the time to look at any of it. Whereas if we can make things visually scannable, even when it's busy, we can get people's attention in the right places. And if we can do that, that can still be a successful scenario. One of the things that I was reminded of while reading the book is one of the subtitles where you say, Make the shift from telling things as a linear path to a narrative arc. Yes. And you're saying now, don't make everything equally important because it's not. Let it build. And I'm going to repeat the five steps you use for uh, introducing a story because a lot of people listening right now are thinking, storytelling, I'm no Stephen King. I can't <laughs> write a novel. And, and it doesn't have to be a novel and it's not necessarily complex. It's just a very simple framework where you talk about what's the problem, what's the rising action, what's the climax of what it is that you want to tell, what's the falling action, and what's the ending. What type of context do you want to share around those five steps that help us use it and not just understand them as different steps in a process? Yeah. It, and it's interesting to me because I think people hear story and they have all sorts of preconceived notions that come along with that. And when I'm thinking story in a business communication setting, it's exactly what you've described, right? It's this narrative arc. Because if we step back and think about how we typically communicate in a business setting, it doesn't look like that, right? Our typical approach is this linear path where we start off maybe with a question, right? What did we set out to answer in the first place? Then there's the data. What did we gather? How did we get it? You know, What assumptions do we have to make? What did we do to clean it? Then the analysis, right? What were the actual statistical methodologies we employed? Then maybe our findings and recommendations, right? And the, the challenge with this typical linear path 
path. And, and this, by the way, comes to us naturally because this is typically the path that we go through when we look at data or when we solve a problem. And so it's natural that it becomes to us this way. The challenge though, is this is actually a very selfish path, right? This is a path, if I'm the one making it, that's meant for me or my data or my project. So when we go through this typical linear path, the thing that often gets overlooked is the audience. And for me, that's the biggest benefit that we get from moving from this linear approach to rethinking our business presentations along the narrative arc, right? Using story. Because for there to be an arc, to have this shape, there has to be a really important component. And that component is tension. Right? And it's not about making tension up. If there were no tension, we'd have nothing to communicate about in the first place. But rather, it's about identifying what that tension is. And it's not the tension that matters to us. It's a tension that matters to our audience. And then weaving that into the story. Right? And it, when we do that, we can start off. We can set the context, the plot. Then we can introduce that tension. We can let that tension build to whatever course is natural or makes sense given the magnitude of what we're talking through. That's the rising action and the climax that you talked about. Then there's this falling action, right? A bit of a buffer to get us from the climax to the resolution. And the resolution in our business stories, in our data stories, is what our audience can do to resolve the tension that we've brought to light. Because then our audience becomes the hero, basically, in our story. And that's where, how we can use story to you know, get people on board, get the right conversations going, and hopefully drive our audience to undertake the action or set the steps in place to take the action that we think is warranted. I don't know if you've been watching the latest season of The Crown on Netflix. I've started it. I think I'm maybe two episodes in so far. All right. So I happened to watch it over the weekend and, and catch up. I think I'm on episode five. Okay. And there's an, a scene in there where Lord Mountbatten makes a pitch for agreeing with the bankers who want out um, the Prime Minister Wilson. Okay. And he does such a, a tremendous job of, first of all, that when they approach him with it, he says, let me get back to you in two days. And he goes back and researches all of the previous campaigns where this has failed and where it succeeded. Mm -hmm. And he presents it in an analysis to them that is just magnificent because he does. He says, well, if this is the issue, here's how it succeeded. And it seems like we have a lot of similarities to that here today. And it will, if we approach it in the same way, it will utterly fail unless. <laughs> yeah, there's your tension, right? <laughs> and, and when he says unless, he pauses and every one of them, just they just rivet on what he's going to say next. Mm -hmm. Because then he starts to say, unless we had one person help us, who is the queen? And she happens to be my second cousin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and all of it starts to become a possibility where before it was just utterly stopped. And it was a case of, of making a presentation and a pitch using story that I thought was just masterful. So I encourage people who haven't been tuning in, go to the episode where that happens just so you can listen to that presentation and understand the power of story in making a presentation. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. And it highlights a really interesting thing as well, which is the role of the presenter 
in all of this. And I always find this to be a fascinating thing because, you know, people come to our workshops or they read our books. A lot of people come in because they want to understand the data piece, right? And how to show data and visualize data. But the other side of that is how do you actually present it, right? Are you the one talking through it? How do you do that in a way that's going to command people's attention? Because we've all exhibited this where a good presenter can overcome mediocre materials, right? It might not be the perfect graph or the perfect slide, but if I can talk through that in a way that gets your attention and holds your attention, that can still be a successful scenario. The alternative is not true, right? I can spend hours making the most beautiful data visualization, the most beautiful graph in the world. And without a compelling narrative to go with that, right? To make it something my audience cares about and understands and wants to pay attention to, I run the risk of that beautiful graph falling totally flat. So it's an interesting idea, right? The role that the presenter has in all of this, whether it's in person, talking through something in front of a live audience or by virtue of the design components that they put around it for something that's going to be consumed on its own. So it's another important facet to be paying attention to and honing for folks who are communicating. When I worked at Apple, I was going through and making a presentation once and I was warned by one of the senior managers saying, to always use statistics effectively and not use it, he's making a little joke and using this metaphor, he says, and not to use statistics the way that a drunk uses a lamppost, meaning that he uses it for support to stand Mm -hmm. up Mm -hmm. rather than for illumination to shed light on the argument he's looking to make. Yeah, interesting analogy. And again, it's the role of the presenter, being able to wield not just the power of the, the slide, but the power of the story. And I think a lot of people in all sorts of businesses undervalue story. Do you ever get that in your workshops or people communicating with you? And if so, why do you think that is? Yes, I think definitely we encounter that. Maybe less so over the years because one of the things that people are recognizing now is that the data is actually no good without a story to go with it. But I think what we've seen in the last, I don't know, five years, last decade maybe, is there's been such an emphasis on technical skills, right? Data scientist is this new buzzword. People want to be a data scientist or they want to hire data scientists, which is great, but there's been such a focus on the technical skills that I think some of these other skills have been overlooked or undervalued historically. And one of those is this story piece and the ability to tell a story. We encounter the scenario a lot or the opinion a lot that you know data should speak for itself, which for me is not true. Or you know the challenge of it is it might speak for itself, but it's going to say something different to every person, which if you're trying to unite people or motivate them to, to do something, undertake an action, understand something, that's not a good scenario to be in. And story is what helps us break out of that. But the resistance we encounter to story sometimes, uh, you know, people think story and they have these associations with marketing, fluffy sort of things. And I try to coach people that if they're thinking about story that way, they're actually not thinking about it in the right way. Because story can be used very strategically in how we communicate in a business setting, right? As we've talked about, there are these ways that we can use the narrative arc and tension and an understanding of our audience to engage in ways that the data alone does not do. 
And so being thoughtful about that and how we approach it. And one of the meta lessons, I think, that we try to impart through through our workshops, through the books, is just this idea that we shouldn't just communicate the same way we always do because we always do it that way. And I think that's a trap that individuals and organizations fall into, right? It's this habit of how we do things. But rather for each scenario, and particularly if the stakes are high, stepping back and really thinking about what does success look like this time? And that's in light of who our audience is, uh, how we're presenting to them. Does our data reinforce what they already believe to be too? Or is it going to question some highly regarded beliefs? right? How accepting are they going to be of what we need? Do we need input from them? Or are we making a recommendation? All of these things together we should be thinking about as we plan our communications, as we plan, you know, how we visualize our data, how we take people through our story, uh, rather than just do things the way we've always done them because we've always done them that way. And so story for me is just another thing that we can have in our tool belt when it comes to thinking about how we can meet our audiences and our needs in a given scenario. That's one way that we can leverage to potentially get there. Cole, I know a lot of people who are listening to this are thinking, isn't what this what a dashboard is supposed to do? No. If I have a, if I have a dashboard, gosh, is, isn't that the whole thing with getting the data out and making it tell a story? <laughs> so uh, no is my short answer to that. So for me, I, I tend to draw a distinction between exploratory analysis and explanatory analysis. So exploratory analysis is where you're looking at all of the data, right? Or lots of the data. You're combining it different ways, trying to figure out where are things in line with my expectations? Where are they not in line with my expectations? It's the process of finding or uh, uncovering the stories. But then once we've done that, then we move into explanatory space. And that's where we want to think about how we show our data, the path we take our audience on, right? That's where story comes in. For me, dashboards fit more into that exploratory part of the process. They are absolutely a useful thing to have, right? And I'd lump any sort of regular reporting into this as well, right? Monthly reporting, quarterly reporting, where dashboard, the quarterly report, these are things that we can go through. We can look at a lot of data in a small space and get an understanding of where are things roughly what we expect them to be and more importantly, where are they not? And it's when we find where they're not that then we want to take them that data, those stories out of the dashboard and do a lot of the things that we talk about in the books, in the workshops. Because the challenge is when there's something interesting happening in the dashboard or on page 87 of the quarterly report, we run the risk of it never seeing the light of day or getting missed because it's hiding amongst all of this other data. And that's not a bad thing, right? That is part of the result of what a dashboard is meant to do. The dashboards help us find the interesting things faster, but the dashboard is not the tool to then tell those interesting things to someone else. That's where we want to put the dashboard aside and get more basic, right? And we use a lot of really basic tools in our workshops and that I talk about in the books, things like paper and pens and post-it notes to really help us step away from the data and think big picture and organize our thoughts. And there's really important things that happen in doing this in a low tech fashion, right? We remove the constraints of our tools or what we know how to do in our tools. We don't build 
this sort of attachment <laughs> to what we've done, right? Because if I spend five hours making a beautiful graph on a beautiful slide, I'm going to be reticent to let that go. Whereas if I mock something up on paper and it takes me 30 seconds and I realize, oh, it doesn't work, or I show it to someone else and realize through that conversation that it doesn't work, it's much easier to recycle the paper and move on to something else versus this attachment that we form when we do things in our tools. So stepping back, going low tech, thinking big picture. These are all things that can help us be successful in our communications. I'm going to change gears for a moment because your company is named Storytelling with Data. It's found at storytellingwithdata.com. And you have two books with Storytelling (laughs) with Data in the title. I'm guessing this was a deliberate branding approach and strategy to owning this phrase. So repetition is a useful thing. That's part of why we remember things, right? So uh, yes. And for me, I think also it just, the phrase so encompasses what we're trying to teach, right? We're trying to teach people to tell stories with their data, right? To use data to inspire change and new understanding. We sometimes paraphrase it as we help people make graphs that make sense and go beyond that to weave this data into compelling stories. And for me, it really is both of those pieces. It's the visual, as we talked about earlier, and it's the story. Because when you put those two things together, this really interesting magic happens in being able to get our point across and hopefully being able to get it across in a memorable way. And so repetition is a piece of that for sure. Cole, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Absolutely. So earlier I asked you about a person who influenced or inspired you and you talked about your mom. Now, what's a book or idea that changed the course of your life? So I'm going to go way back and I'm going to say Charlotte's Web by E.B. White. Charlotte's Web was a a book I read. uh, It was a movie I watched many, many, many times. And that repetition, I think, uh, makes it memorable for me. Interesting, as I'm sort of reflecting on this, as I think through it, there were also some visual components, right? So for for folks who may not be uh, familiar with this, it's a story on a farm of there's a pig Oh goodness, Wilbur, I think, going off of memory here, who befriends a spider named Charlotte. And Wilbur is a prized pig, goes to the state fair, wins all sorts of awards, but then is ready to be butchered, I think. And so Charlotte starts writing messages in her web and all the farm animals are working together to try to figure out, you know, strategizing for how they can keep Wilbur from being butchered. And so it's, you know, there's, it's got all the components of a good story. There's a juicy plot, there's tension, there's the animals coming together for a common good. It's a little random now that I think of this being the book that I'm reflecting on, but I think it does have a lot of parallels to what we've been talking about, right? It's the components of story. It's the visual pieces and and all of those things working together in a way that incites action. And uh, I won't ruin it, but it does end up being a happy ending. (laughs) I think that's exactly it. I'll just share with you. As you said that, the first idea that came through my mind is, oh my gosh, early infographics. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) All right. Next question is, what's one of the best ways you've spent $100 or less in the last two months? 
Well, I'm going to go with something sort of random here. And I have actually just stocked up. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but on post-it notes. And when I stock up, I mean like hundreds of packs of post-it notes. And this purchase actually made me so happy because they're in different colors. And and I, I do this thing called storyboarding, which is basically making a visual outline of any new content I'm going to go through. So it could be, you know, an example that I'm going to use for teaching, or I did this recently for a keynote that I did for a conference where one of the first things I do after I have in my head the nugget of the idea is I storyboard. So for me, that is taking a pack of post-its and it's three distinct processes uh, within storyboarding. So I brainstorm, I edit, and I get feedback and iterate. So the brainstorming process is just writing down ideas sort of as fast as they come to my head, putting them out on post-it notes without any worry of, do they make it in the final thing or what order do they come in? I'm just getting the ideas out of my head, out into the physical world. And that doesn't take very long, 10 minutes or so. And then I have this you know, pile of post-it notes with ideas written on them. And that's when I start editing. And I have a big black desk, so I arrange them on the desk and, you know, I start grouping things together into categories, start thinking about how might I take somebody else through this in a way that makes sense? Where do I need to add things? Where do I need to take things away? I also always have a discard pile, which is very important because I think when we start in this low-tech way, we can reflect on an idea and let go of it in a way that's harder with our tools where we think whatever we create needs to answer every possible question that might come up. So I spend some time editing and then I get feedback from someone else. I talk them through my idea or in some cases I show them the storyboard and get feedback and use that to iterate. And none of this takes a ton of time, right? At the end of an hour or so spent on this, I have a plan of attack that helps keep me on track for the whole rest of the process of actually creating the content and putting it together. So my prized purchase as of recently was like 30 bucks I spent on a whole lot of post-it notes. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Now, once you've done that, do you take a picture to capture it once you get it into a, a final state or do you translate it? What's your next step after so that? So I, and this is one of those things, you know, people should, if they're wanting to try this out, they should do whatever works for them. But I have invested also in these massive pieces of paper from the art store. So they're like pretty thick paper, so they don't bend really easily. I have to watch where I put them because my children come in and always want to steal them to draw art on because it's really nice paper, but it's very large. And so I do the storyboarding on my desk because I like the clean black surface. But then once I have the order down, I take one of these big pieces of paper and I put all of the post-its, I relocate them onto this big piece of paper. And then that's the thing that I like wheeled around. You know, I'll, I'll lift it up when I'm on uh, video conferences with my team and I'm talking them through it to get feedback. Or it's the thing that I have in front of me when I'm then putting together the deck or putting together whatever it is for the communication. I have, uh, I have one of these for each of the chapters of both of my books because this is how I did the planning for, you know, what examples come in, what order do we go through and and all of those sorts of decisions. And I'll do many drafts of them sometimes. Yeah. I love it. So here's another question. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? (sighs) 
I think for me, that has to be starting to ignore some of the social media that I think was taking up too much time and mind share in ways that was unproductive. And so I still do some, but I'm much more aware of how much time I'm spending and what sort of activities I'm undertaking there. It ends up being this time suck where, and, and I evaluate those sorts of things pretty frequently of how am, you know, over the course of a day or a week or a month, how am I spending my time? Because time is one of the most precious resources we have. So where I can identify uses of time that are maybe not serving me well and replace those with some productive time, that tends to be a really useful thing. So I think killing some social media in the past year. And is that consumption or production? Both. Excellent. A lot of people are thinking very differently about storytelling with data. And I know that you've got, I've read the two books that you have out. And I think that you have two different types of workshops that you have. Some are open enrollment, yep. some are custom, where you actually come into an organization and use their data in order to build the workshop around. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So we do a mix where we spend a lot of time going into organizations where we'll spend half a day or a day or longer in some cases with a team, really talking about the foundational principles for communicating with data and then going beyond that to a lot of the things that we've talked about here today of how do you think about your audience and story and make all of those things work together. One of the fun things that we do for our custom workshops is we solicit examples from the team ahead of time and use those as the basis of some of our hands-on discussions. And that tends to be really eye-opening for folks to see these concepts talked about, not just in theory or with some uh, canned examples, but seeing them applied to their or their colleagues' work tends to be really eye-opening. So we do custom workshops, and then we also run a series of public workshops where individuals from different organizations join. And these tend to be really fun because it, you know, it's one, it's a great way to network and be around other people who are interested in developing this skill set. Also, I think it's interesting because it reinforces this idea that even though, you know, people are coming from different industries and different roles and different types of businesses, we're all struggling with common things when it comes to this stuff, right? Nobody teaches us how to tell effective stories with data, but it turns out there's some really simple things that everyone can do to help make their data more consumable and help make their message get across. And so that's what we really practice in these workshops. And all the info is up on our webpage at storytellingwithdata.com. We're in the process of finalizing our 2020 schedule for the public workshops, and we'll be putting all of that detail up in January. Cole, two of the things that struck me, two of the many things that struck me as I was going through the books was that, first of all, less is more. Yes. And I saw that you removed things like axes and certainly clarifying titles to make the axes clear, but grid lines and making them more stark in order to make them more effective. Yeah, you think about it. Tell, speak a little bit about that, the misconceptions that people have that they might need more detail in order to show finer distinctions where really that might not be the case. This is one of those really simple but high impact lessons, which is when you look at a graph or you look at a slide, you know, there is this tendency for us to want to pack on as much as we can. But when you step back and think about it from our audience's standpoint, every single element we put in a graph or on a slide takes up cognitive burden on the part of our audience, right? They have to process that. So the idea is the more we strip away, the more we can make our data and our message stand out. So in our workshops, in the books, we go through 
a lot of different examples, uh, helping identify clutter, right? What's the stuff that's there that doesn't need to be and getting people comfortable removing those things. And this is another great example of the importance of starting with paper or some of the benefits of starting with paper. Because when we're drawing, if we're mocking something up on a piece of paper, we don't tend to put clutter into what we draw. And so if you're finding you have a lot of clutter in your graphs or on your slides, start on a piece of paper, right? Where each stroke of the pen or pencil actually takes effort. Uh, We don't put as much on there when that's the case. And if you can get it right on paper, then you can turn back to your tools or the people you have with in your teams to say, you know, what tools or experts do I have who can help me make this real? Um, And taking it beyond just decluttering, because I think one thing that happens if we just take things away is our audience can feel like they've lost something without gaining anything. And so once you've decluttered, think about where do you want your audience to look and why do you want them to look there? And then take steps to achieve both of those things, right? Use color sparingly to direct your audience to where you want them to focus their attention and use words written on the page that tell your audience why you want them to look there. These steps alone, right? Getting rid of clutter, making it clear where to focus, putting words that tell your audience why can really go a long way in terms of clarity for our audience, making our data understandable and our message clear. These are just some examples of the simple things that we can do that we practice a lot and that there are a lot of examples of in the books. I just want to underscore that, Cole. You've been so generous with sharing so many of your insights about storytelling with data, starting with understanding and stepping back to what the strategic message is that you want to have occur. And whether it's a message or whether you're looking to persuade people or illuminate a problem, that's the starting point not jumping into Excel or Google charts or something like that right away. It's thinking about your audience and it's thinking about what you want to present and what type of action you want them to take. Um, Helping people understand the importance of using data effectively and storytelling as you illustrated through your career was something that you were using it to find a way to get people's attention on the data that you were sharing. And you found that visualizing it was the first powerful way to do it. And then storytelling just took it up to another level. And now you've shared these in these two wonderful books, as well as through your workshops. And I just want to to say that I've learned so much and want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best. Fantastic. Thanks, Bill. Is there another minute for me to throw something in? Sure. What would you like people to think about as we close? And before we leave, we'll certainly uh, connect with your website. So go ahead. What would you like people to think about as we close? I think I just want to make sure that folks listening recognize that this is not a skill that people naturally have, right? This is like anything else, a skill that takes practice and intentional honing. And in addition to the books and the workshops, we've been working on a resource that I'm very excited to share with you and your listeners, which is the Storytelling with Data community. I'm a strong believer that the way to get good at this stuff is to practice and get feedback and give feedback and discover great work. And the Storytelling with Data community has been facilitated uh, or crafted to facilitate all of these things. And it's a place, an online community where people can practice and do exercises similar to what they'll find in the practice book and talk with others about what challenges they're facing or how they've had success. And so I, I encourage everyone to check that out and invite you to join. There's info on that at our website, storytellingwithdata.com. 
Well, we're going to link to that as well as your books, as well as your workshop schedule, so that people can find it so easy after listening to this to connect with you. Would you share once again what your website could possibly be called? Help me me remember. (laughs) Repetition, repetition, (laughs) repetition. You'll find a ton of resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Cole, thank you once again so much for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thanks, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.